0: Good morning everyone. How's everyone doing? It's gonna be good. Thanks for being here today. We are wrapping up our series today. The series has been called The Skeptic and the Believer. So what we have done over the last, this is part five, so the last five weeks, is we have taken different obstacles that people have for faith, or maybe different reasons why people are skeptical about faith. Maybe you've had conversations with people in your neighborhood, with coworkers, with family and friends, where you bring up your Christian faith, and they say, well, I don't believe that because, and they list any number of reasons. So we've kind of gone through those. We talked week one about science and faith and all the scientific findings in the scientific community and we have this understanding in our world that science somehow disproves the existence of god and we looked through that we looked at science and realized there are plenty of very brilliant smart scientists that would say no the more we uncover about creation the universe human dna and biology the more it points to an intelligent design it points to a creator Um, We talked about uh, week two about we, we love to quote Bible verses as Christians, but we live in a world full of people that say, well, why would I even believe what the Bible says? Isn't that just some book that somebody wrote and made it sound like what they wanted it to sound like so they could make up a story about Jesus? And why should I even believe about Jesus? Isn't that all made up? We looked at these things, that there is credible evidence that the Bible is truth. We're going to be looking at that today as we talk about a different topic, that we, we trust what the Bible says about these topics because there is credible evidence that this is historically accurate, that this is inspired by God. We talked about that. And last week, um, we talked about the topic of evil and pain in the world. If God is good and God is loving and God is powerful, why is there suffering? Why is there evil and pain in the world? So those are the ones that you've missed. If you're coming for the first time today, first of all, you're kind of coming in at the end of the movie. And so if you wanted to get caught up in what we have talked about, you can go online on our church website, homesteadcommunitychurch.org. Listen to any of those under the sermons tab. We're also, we're so high tech. We have an app, Homestead Community Church on the App Store. We'll have all the sermons on there as well as a podcast, podcastable. I'm sounding like an old man talking about technology. The podcasts where we don't really know what they are, but they're there. The sermons are there. So today we are wrapping up our series with another big reason why people are opposed to faith and the Christian message. This is going to be a good one, all right? And everyone just kind of relax. It's going to be good. Christy's kind of giving you a a little bit of a teaser as to what the topic is going to be today. But really, what we're talking about today is our culture is individualistic. Our culture is all about the individual, where maybe 100 years ago, 200 years ago, cultures all over the world were you would have more focus on the group, on the tribe, on the community, on the family, whatever it is, you thought bigger than yourself. But today, it's not really that way, is it? We are individuals. We are individuals. We are all about individual freedom. We are all about what's right for me. Don't tell me what's right for you because I'm me, I'm an individual, and this is what's right for me. So don't impose any sort of moral standard on me. Um, In other words, we live in a world, and we all can be this way as well, where we say, and individuals say this, I'm the boss of me, and I'll do what I want with my life, and what I want with my life is my happiness. That's my goal. So don't get in the way of that. Don't get in the way of what I want to do with my life and what's going to make me happy. And that's why people would look at God and the Bible and faith as a huge obstacle to that because they see God as the one who's going to get in the way of all the things that the individuals want to do, all the ways that the individuals want to make themselves happy. And so today, we're going to talk about that moral standard in the world versus what the Bible says, and specifically, we are talking about sexuality, Sex. what the world says about it, what the Bible says about it. And I know some of you are thinking, this is my first time here. Why did I pick this Sunday to come? Or great, I've been inviting my neighbor for six months and they finally came today and it's like the worst day. Or maybe you're thinking, sweet, finally something that I'll be interested in listening to for a half an hour. You might, yes, finally. Um, I know that there are churches that that do this and it seems like Maybe you might be thinking, oh, great, he must be, attendance must be low, so it's like a ratings boost, like a ratings grab, like TV shows, or they'll kind of try to spice it up a bit in order to get more people to watch. That's not what I'm doing. That's not what I'm doing today. This is an important message. This is the first time we've preached a message like this at Homestead Church, but there are people who are skeptical about God and faith because it's a hindrance to their personal freedom and their personal views, specifically in regard to sexuality. So they would say, don't tell me how to live, and I want to talk about that today. I think for our students, I think this is an important message, as uncomfortable as it is for some of our students, specifically because some of you are sitting in the same room as your parents, and this is going to be the worst. And so you can just, we're going to get through it together. It's going to be awesome. We have two important points today that we are going to look at, and we're going to look at some scripture verses, and we're gonna just kind of talk about the culture and its view of sex and what God says about it and the biblical view of it. So there's a couple different points, big points that I want to talk about today. First one is this, that God created it, okay? God created sex. Okay, everyone take a deep breath, all right? Yes, he created it for procreation, that humanity would survive, but he also created it for our enjoyment. And some of you are like, should I say amen? You can say amen today. Amen. God created it for our enjoyment. He is not against it in spite spite of what the world views. It's it's a weird message in the church because we we would say God created it. God created it for enjoyment between husband and wife, but yet we have single people and we have teenagers growing up and as a teenager that grew up, I remember hearing that message. But yet I had all these hormones and desires and wanted to look at things and curiosity and all these things. And it seemed like every time something would come up, the message I would hear as a single teenager was, don't do that. Don't look at that. That's bad. That's sinful. That's temptation. That's dirty. That's bad. And so the message you would hear as a teenager growing up was, sex is evil and sin and temptation and bad. So save it for the one that you love when you're married someday, right? We would kind of hear this, kind of hear this message. It's like, wow, I don't understand that. So we're talking about that that many people view God as the no fun God, nothing enjoyable in life, just rules, follow the rules, certainly in regards to sexuality, follow the rules, all God wants for my life is to limit my sexual expression, and therefore he's not interested in any happiness or any enjoyment in my life, certainly any pleasure in my life. And the Christian view on this topic is therefore often seen as old-fashioned, outdated, oppressive, intolerant, certainly not respectful of personal freedom in this individual culture of I want to do whatever I want to do, right? But the good news, the, the first point today is that he created it. It was his idea. The scripture talks a lot about this topic. Some of you are like, really, wow, I should actually read this. You should. It's just some great stuff in there. It talks about human sexuality a lot. There's a whole book in the Old Testament. Maybe you're new to to faith or new to the Bible. There's a whole book in the Old Testament that talks about sex, right? The Jewish tradition growing up, since this was the Jewish scripture, young boys would not be allowed to read the book of Song of Solomon, Until they were a certain age, because there's so much in there that was just like, we can't let the young boys read this. Their minds are going to go crazy. This was what the the Jewish scripture had in it, a whole book talking about sex. Look at Adam and Eve, okay? The story of Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter 2, God created Adam and Eve. And what does God tell Adam and Eve to do? He tells them to be fruitful and multiply, right? Right? So here's God, he's created Adam and Eve, and he's created them naked, putting them in the garden together. Nobody else is around, it's this beautiful setting, and he's telling them, here you are naked, go be fruitful and multiply. Well, what did God think was going to happen, right? This had to be like, yes, this is what's supposed to happen. This beautiful garden, two people there, nobody else around. If you read the message translation, it says that in the background you could hear some Marvin Gaye music playing very quietly. Like a whisper through the trees. Bow, 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 bow. I've been really trying. Sorry, I'm trying to keep it light today. The book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 5, we're going to read some verses. They're going to be on the screen. And this is going to be probably the, the part where the most of this sermon, where there's going to be some words in here. Like, I can't believe we're hearing these words in church, but it's right here in the Bible. So don't get mad at me if you don't like these words. Proverbs chapter 5, talking about marriage, uh, fidelity in marriage, talking about sex in marriage, talking about husbands and wives. It says this in verse 15. This will be up on the screen. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Verse 18, may your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. Here we go. And may her breasts satisfy you always. May you be ever intoxicated with her love. Whoa, some of you are like, this Bible's awesome. i got to read more of this. That's what it says in there. And this is not God saying, hey, you kids, cut it out. You know, stop doing that. This is bad. You shouldn't be doing that. This is God's words. May you. He's saying be intoxicated with each other, husbands and wives. This is good stuff. God made it. God is for sex. And some of you are like, yeah, I could get on board with a God like that. Yes. But he made it for more It's not just about pleasure and enjoyment. God made it for that, but not just about that. God also is for sex, is pro-sex, because it is significant and sacred. All right? And that is the idea that is taking such a hit in our world today, in our culture today. Our world can get on board with enjoyment and pleasure, yes, but significant and sacred is the thing that our world is not quite grasping in regards to God's design for sex. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31, talking about marriage. And you, if you've been to a wedding, you've probably heard this verse quoted in the marriage ceremony. For this reason, a man will leave his father... And his mother and be united with his wife. The two will become one flesh. This is why God also speaks so directly against divorce. Because what he's saying is when two people are united in marriage, they are united. They are joined together. And you can't separate that. The two have become one Two people have become one flesh. You can't separate one thing without really tearing it apart. This is the idea of marriage. And sex is the physical act of this unity. It is not, it is never an individual thing. It is never an individual thing about what do I want. It is the unifying factor between husbands and wives, the physical sign of this unity, this two people becoming one, and this unity, this bond goes way beyond that. It is something significant that never, ever separates. Two people becoming one. The message of this physical act is I belong to you, you belong to me totally and completely. We have now become one person, and that doesn't stop after the physical act. There is a connection there. In science, I was actually researching this this week, science actually points to this as well. In any sexual activity, there's a chemical that's released in your brain called oxytocin. It's a chemical released during any sexual activity, and that chemical, what it does is it creates an emotional bond. It's not just a happiness thing. It's an emotional bond. So whatever sexual activity, you, your brain is now creating an emotional bond between you and your sexual partner. So there is no such thing as casual sex. There is no such thing. No matter what you hear in high school, in your workplace, online, movies, whatever it is, there's no such thing as that. Because your brain does not work that way. Your brain doesn't shut that off. It creates an emotional connection. What the Bible says is that there is a connection there that is made. And this connection is to be between husband and wife. A few verses before that in Ephesians, Paul is encouraging husbands and wives to be subject to one another, to prefer one another, to serve one another. And so ultimately this talk that he has about marriage united to become one is in regards to that. You serve, you prefer one another. This is not about you. Nothing in marriage, sex included, is just about you. This is not about you. This is about the unity between husbands and wives. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 4 says this, the wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. What scripture is teaching us is your own body doesn't belong to you anymore. It belongs to your spouse. So right now you can kind of elbow your spouse and just say, "You're welcome. You're welcome. This belongs to you. I'm so lucky." <laughs> you know. You're welcome. Sex in marriage is for our enjoyment, and it is also a sacred act, a sign of perfect commitment and perfect unity between husband and wife. Now, this takes work. This takes communication. You have to know each other. You have to talk about it. You have to know what works for the other person, what doesn't. You have to communicate. You have to learn to prefer the other person. This does not work in an individual what I want mentality. Even in marriage, this does not work with a, well, here's what I want, so you have to do that. This is prefer the other person. Learn what the other person would like. Learn what the other person has expectations or hang-ups or whatever it is. You have to communicate. You have to work at this. That is not what is communicated, certainly, in any TV shows and movies. It's, you know, the lights go down and it's magic. And No, in real unity in husband and wife, there's a whole lot more going on. It's, you've spent the day changing diapers with your kids or fighting with your kids or trying to manage this, and all of a sudden the, the music starts playing and magic is supposed to happen. No, it takes work at times, and there needs to be communication. There have been times where I have heard sermons on this topic, and there is a point of it where the pastor would say, so how often are you supposed to have sex as married couples? And that always bugs me a little bit. I don't think it's a number thing. I don't think, it it doesn't do any good for me to put a number out there and say, here's normal, or here's what God wants, because every couple is different. There are couples that really struggle with this. There are Christian couples that grew up in church hearing that mixed message of, it's bad, it's sinful, it's temptation, don't look at that, don't do that. And all of a sudden, they're supposed to flip the switch, and it takes a while. There are couples that there are other issues going on, and they have a harder time with this. So I'm not going to say that. What I would encourage you to do as husbands and wives is learn how to talk about it. Bring it up in conversation. Learn how to prefer the other person, not looking for what you can get, but how can you help your spouse. And the biggest thing is marriage is not just about this physical act of intimacy. Marriage is about intimacy in every area of your life. And if you can work on that, the physical act is going to become a lot easier and a lot more natural. Strive for intimacy in every area. All right, halftime. How are we doing? We doing good? Everyone all right? Students, we doing okay? Good. You're not making any eye contact with your parents? That's good. Just eyes straight forward. This This is fine. So the first big point was that God made it. God designed it. The second important point is this, that sex is not God. Sex is not God, and it is often treated that way in our world. Not just seen as good, but it is seen as the ultimate good. It becomes an idol. It becomes the defining focus of relationships. It is seen as an appetite that must be satisfied, and doing so is the ultimate goal. That's the way our culture, many in our culture view it. It's the ultimate goal. It's the ultimate appetite that must be satisfied. Sexual freedom is viewed as have as much as you can, however you can, with whomever you can. And in this worldview, the scriptural view of sex between husband and wife in marriage is seen as limiting And again, that in our individual culture is just the enemy of our individual crusade to be happy and do whatever I want. Now, this view, this elevated view of sex, that sex is God, sex is an idol, this, of course, is harmful in so many ways in our world, right? We can see it in our world. This view is harmful. First, what it does is it takes the other person and doesn't make them a person anymore. It makes them an object or a means to an end, a thing to be used in order to get what I want. No regard for the well-being of the other person. And this, of course, in our world today, you don't have to watch the news long before you see that mentality having drastic, devastating consequences. Hurt and evil all over the world. Rape, assault, harassment prostitution, abuse, sex trafficking, all resulting when the other person is not a person at all. It's just a means to an end, a way to get what I want, to gratify my desires. Now, this defines our world. This defines our world. We see it all over. So that's one way that view, that elevated view of sex harms us. Another way is this, is that it leads people to settle for shortcuts and counterfeits, things that aren't the real deal. Instead of pursuing a lifelong commitment and enjoying this within the commitment of marriage, people pursue shortcuts the easy way, counterfeits. This would be pornography, strip clubs, prostitution, hookups, one-night stands, all cheap counterfeits for what God has designed for our lifelong enjoyment. And here's something the the world that wants to tell you It's all about satisfying that appetite. It's all about getting it whenever you can, however you can. Here's something the world will not tell you, which is the truth, is that this. If you pursue this life of sexual appetite, you're never satisfied. You're never satisfied. You think you can satisfy it with a cheap counterfeit, but all you're left with is emptiness. All you're left with is emptiness. And worse... You're left with a stronger appetite. It has left you empty and left you with a stronger appetite for something more extreme the next time. It's an escalating emptiness. It really is like a drug where you become, now I need more, now I need more. And it never, it really is like a drug. It demands that attention of you, saying you'll be fulfilled when you can do this, and then it leaves you feeling empty, leaves you with emptiness. That's why there's no such thing. Students and single people and married people, this all applies to everybody. There's no such thing as an innocent lust. There's no such thing as casual sex or harmless pornography. These all have lasting effects. They have lasting effects. They have chemical effects on your brain that your brain does not get rid of. There's that connection, remember, that's made, that connection to whoever or whatever it is that you are focusing your sexual energy on. There's a chemical effect on your brain. And these cheap imitations are not only harmful to single people, but certainly harmful to marriages as well because it affects our expectations, it affects what we view as real, it lessens the satisfaction in your marriage. Anything that brings comparison into your marriage, anything that brings any sort of comparison, um, is anything that brings comparison to what is supposed to be a safe, intimate, husband and wife only environment, it is harmful. It tears that apart. Comparison will destroy unity. Comparisons to how somebody else looks, how somebody else acts, the way that somebody else treats their spouse, the way that somebody else behaves sexually. And this can come from movies. This can come from images. This can be from previous sexual partners. This could be something as simple as social media. You know what is happening in our world today is people are looking at social media. Everyone's putting out on social media, oh, my husband did such the nicest thing. Look at the flowers every day. They're not saying, yeah, we just fought for six hours about bills and all these things. And so we read that and we start thinking, man, my spouse does not do that. Pictures, my spouse doesn't look like that. They don't talk to me that way. They don't do these nice things. And comparison is born. And you start thinking, oh, I wish my spouse would do this. That is a comparison that will bring destruction to that unity that God has designed for just you and your spouse. Comparison will tear that apart. It breaks that intimacy that is just for husband and wife. So that's the second way. This view, this idolatrous view of sex. It causes people to settle for shortcuts. That was the second harm. And the third thing that it does that's damaging in our world, this view, this ultimate view of sex is this, is that it makes people think that this is the norm, that this is normal, that this has to be the way it is, that any relationship, any dating relationship, needs to turn sexual as soon as possible in order for it to be validated. That's what our culture is trying to teach us. And certainly this is a message facing our single people in the world today, certainly facing our students. In high school, certainly. In middle school, certainly. This, this is the message they are hearing. That's why I'm, not, I'm glad that students are here today, because this is not something that they're, they're... If you're worried about your kid hearing about sex at church, well, they're hearing about it everywhere else, right? And this needs to be part of the conversation. But the message they're hearing from the world is that's where it's got to go, That's the expectation. If you're dating, well, how soon is it going to turn sexual? Because that's the way it has to work. That's where it's going to go. That's what our culture is telling us. Our culture that views sex as God, it lowers the bar for men and women as to the commitment required for any sexual activity. As to the commitment required in a relationship, it lowers the bar and it cheapens it. You know, that, the, the phrase, lower the bar. Okay, so we're talking Olympic high jumping here. You know, you raise the bar, you lower the bar. Imagine the Olympics, okay? You go watch the Olympics, and you go to the track and field, and you're going to watch the high jumpers. And those high jumpers are amazing. They stroll in, and they jump like, you know, eight feet in the air. But imagine if in the Olympics what they did was, okay, everyone, we're going to start. The bar is going to be like down here, one foot. Who wants to try? Well, you would have, you know, everyone in the stands, like, I can do that. You'd have this endless line of people like, I'm an Olympian. I'm the best of the best. No, just the bar has been set low enough. Why do they set the bar high? Is because only the best can compete then, right? Only the best candidates can compete when the bar is set high. So, taking that same analogy in sexuality, where are you setting the bar as far as your commitment required? students. Where are you setting the bar as far as what is required in a relationship, as far as what standard of purity and godliness you're going to have? Where are you setting that bar? Set a high bar. Let the world know that a lot is required, that you are talking about husband and wife in the confines of marriage. I'm telling you what, if you set a low bar, and there are plenty of students in our middle schools and high schools and even elementary schools who are learning to set a really low bar as far as what is required for sexuality. And if you set a low enough bar, students, you're gonna have an endless parade of idiots willing to jump over that bar, right, to give you the attention you're looking for. Set a high bar so that you will attract the best of the best, right? Students and all the parents are saying yes, Amen. Set a high bar. Wow, even a clap. This, talking about sex is awesome. <laughs> you will attract the best of the best when you set a high bar. And you're probably thinking, I know, I've tried to do that, but you are bombarded with other messages at school. You might be thinking, well, I'm going to miss out. Everyone else is going to look for the people who set a low bar, right? Everyone else is looking for the people that don't have that high level and that high standard. And if you're worried about that, and I'm just telling you, this is when God says, I have a better way for you, that there is a commitment that is in the confines of marriage, that is in the confines of, yes, you're completely vulnerable and committed and intimate in every way. This is the safety of sex in marriage. Anything involving sex and nakedness is completely vulnerable And you should never be sharing that with someone to whom you are not completely vulnerable and committed to in every other way as well. This is not something that you share cheaply. This is completely vulnerable and intimate. And it is to be in a completely committed and safe environment between husband and wife. So if there's some girls, if there's some dummy at school asking you to text him pictures or putting pressure on you he is not interested in unity and commitment he is interested in satisfying an appetite and i want you to set a higher bar than that and you say no this is i have higher levels of commitment and purity and godly standards and if you can't meet that then go find somebody else that's what your message needs to be set a high bar and God is going to say, you know what? It might seem like you're missing out now. It might seem like everyone else is pointing at you as the old-fashioned person or the religious goody-goody person. And you can trust in God when he says, I've got a better way. It will be worth it. It will be worth it. God's way is a better way. We don't like to hear that in our lives at times. Certainly our world doesn't like to say, don't tell me a better way. I've got my own way to happiness. But God's way is a better way. I highlighted a book that really I've read through a ton in this series over the last five weeks. It's by a man named Mark Clark, and the book is called The Problem of God. And there was a great quote that he had. it's a longer quote. I'm going to read it. It'll be up on the screen. But it is basically him talking about that idea of people view God's view of sexuality as restrictive, as limiting, and how people don't want to do that. They don't want to do that. They want to pursue fun and easy happiness. And so this quote, I think, summed it up so well. I'm going to read it for you. It's a paragraph long, but we'll read it together. It'll be up on the screen. Can we put it up there? While this view, this can feel... Okay, while this can feel restrictive, talking about the Bible's view of sexuality, while this can feel restrictive, we need to remember that many of the best things in life require disciplined focus and commitment. The greater yes is only possible when we say no to other things. That is a great line. The greater yes is only possible when we say no to other things. Contrary to modern thinking about freedom, for which restrictions are seen as oppressive, the wisdom of the Bible and of most of human experience is that restrictions are the secret to deeper truth, flourishing, and joy. He makes this example here. Fish are restricted to water. But only in water are they free to flourish. If a fish tries to live outside those restrictions, it finds itself dying a slow death. In the same way, when we accept who we are as human beings and learn to live within God's sexual restrictions, we begin to experience life as it was originally designed for us. And at first, it may feel like a kind of death, But this is because we have grown addicted to junk food or counterfeits when a healthy feast awaits us. I love the idea that, yes, there are going to be times where you say, I might have to say no to something. I might have to say no to somebody I really like. I might have to say no to something that not only they want, I would like it too. But saying no to those things allows you to experience God's greater yes, to understand within these limitations why he has made us, to understand what true human flourishing can be about. Now, this will not only affect you, this will affect those around you. And if enough people started doing this in our world, it would change our culture. It would change our culture where we say, yeah, there's times where I say no to something that other people say is awesome, but I am living for the greater yes. I'm living for the greater good that God has for me that will cause me not just about to be focused with my immediate happiness, but to be focused on how can I flourish in the way that God has made me. So we're wrapping up here. A couple of practical things, a couple of practical things, and then we're going to wrap up our whole series in a couple of minutes. First of all, you have to talk about this topic in your marriage, with your kids, um, you might be wondering, you know, uh, they're still pretty young. You'd be surprised at how early this topic of conversation is coming up wherever they go, all right? So, in our family, we talk about this with our kids, oftentimes to their eye-rolling and fidgeting in their seats, right? But in our house, we talk about it, and we've had plenty of conversations about sex. We've had the big talk, you know, where where it's kind of like the You know, pull back the curtain, sort of thing. Like, and their eyes get big. Like, what? Because we wanted them to hear it from us first before they hear it from some kid on the school bus, right? We wanted them to hear it from us within the context of, here's what it is. Here's what the Bible says about it. And so here's how we, as a family, this is what we believe. So we've had those conversations, and I remember that conversation as a kid, and I remember that conversation as a dad. And there's always those moments. You know, if you're like me, you were thinking when I was a kid, my parents were telling me this. I was thinking, okay, that's where babies come from. And you think. I have me and an older brother. That means my parents have had sex two times. And you're just like, ah, I can't bear to think about it. In our house, we've had the big talk. But it's not just a one talk and then, okay, done. It's an ongoing conversation in, in the same way as it is with any sort of conversation about what the Bible teaches versus what you're going to hear in the world versus here's what we believe as a family. It's an ongoing thing. It's an ongoing thing. Talk about this with your kids. Talk about with this with your kids, okay? It's going to be uncomfortable. You got to do it. You have to have this conversation. Let it be something that they know they can come and talk to you about when they have questions or when they're ex- or facing things with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. You want to be the person, and it might al- not always be the case when they're teenagers, but you want to, as best as you can, be the person that they feel that they can come talk to about this. Because you know who else is talking about it? everybody else at school, in media, social media, TV, movies, films. So we want to be the ones as parents within the context of here's what we believe as a family. Here's what the Bible teaches. And also another thing, as I have talked about this today, maybe some of you who are here might be thinking that you have made a mistake in this area of your life. You have regrets that you have um, you weren't always a Christian or maybe you were a Christian and you still made mistakes and you have things in your past that you like, oh, I wish I didn't do that. Or maybe you have things in your past that just today you're like, oh, does that mean that was wrong? You know, that you have a, you have a past. And here's what I love about Jesus. There's grace. There's always grace. What I love about Jesus when he encounters people in the world that the rest of the world are saying, shame on you. Jesus sees the individual and he says, I know you've got a past right? But we're going to forgive that. Let's focus on where we're going from here. All right? So I encourage you, if you're worried, if you're preoccupied with a past that you would love to be rid of, just know that Jesus has mercy and forgiveness for that. It is forgotten in his mercy. And what he's saying to you now is, stop worrying so much about that. Let's worry about, now, where are we going? Where are we going? How are we walking this out? How are we going to live lives as the new creation that I have made you? So there is mercy. And Jesus would say, come on, don't worry about the past. There's mercy for that. Let's step into the new future that I have for you where you are designed to flourish in every way of your life. Let's move forward. Let's move forward. So that is it for this series on the skeptic and the believer. All these topics about why people are resistant to faith or opposed to God or the teachings of the Bible. And that leads to one final thought about this whole series, about the whole series. Why are people opposed to God? Maybe you're here as a skeptic or maybe you know a skeptic. It might be science, as we've talked about. It might be that they say it's evolution, there's no God, more of an atheist view. It might be that they believe the Bible is unreliable or they can't believe any of the stories about Jesus, or they can't understand why there's evil in the world, or maybe it's a moral standard that they don't want to adhere to, whatever it is. But I think it often comes down to one reason why people are resistant to God, and that's this, is because they already have a God, and there can only be one. There can only be one God, one Lord of your life. And so for so many of us, and we struggle with this, is we want to be that, right? I've already got a God, and it's me. And I decide what's good for me. I decide how I'm going to live. I decide what I'm going to do. Don't. And so the idea of if you're a king in an empire, what's like top on your priority list is you try to recognize anybody else that's trying to get to the throne and dethrone you and become the new king. So it's built into us. We want to run our lives. And so this idea of God, Jesus coming in and saying, I'm going to be the new lord of your life. I'm going to be the new king. It dethrones us. And we're no longer in charge. And now instead of saying, what's going to make me happy? What do I want to do? It's, what does God say? What does Jesus teach? How can I learn to live like this? And for all of us, it's a constant battle of who is in charge of your life. When he becomes Lord of your life, it's all about this one thing. Who is going to be in charge? Jesus begins to build a new life in you, a life that is designed for you and those around you to flourish and to thrive, to be filled with joy and life. But there's also going to come a time when God is going to challenge you and saying, am I really Lord of your life? Am I really in charge? Because here's something that you need to change. Or here's something in your life that's not lining up with what Scripture teaches. Or here's something that is better for you in spite of what the world is teaching you. And in those moments, our faith comes down to that simple decision of who are you going to surrender to? there's what I want, and then there's God challenging me this, challenging this in me on this area of my life. It might be in regards to sexuality or money or greed or pride or anger or whatever it is, and God is saying, okay, I'm now, am I now the Lord of your life? Here's something we want to get rid of because it's going to be better for you if we do, and it's going to come down to that moment where you say, am I going to surrender to God Or am I going to continue to be the Lord of my own life? That is faith right there. That's the life of faith is continually surrendering to God, kneeling before him and just saying, Lord, this is about you. I want you to run my life. And our faith, our life of faith always comes down to those moments. Might be something you don't want to do. Might be something that just makes you uncomfortable might be something that in your own mind you're like, there's nothing wrong with that. But yet God is saying, oh, this would be better for you if you would just surrender to me in this. One final scripture verse as we wrap up. Jesus talking to his disciples in Matthew 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. And that word, deny, it's like a four-letter word, deny. I don't, we don't want to do that. I don't want to deny myself anything. But that is the message of the scripture. Whoever wants to be a follower, you get to those points where God says, I have something different in mind, and you deny yourself, you take up your cross, and you follow what Jesus wants. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that even in a topic like this, we recognize there is mercy, and there is grace, and there is love, and there is forgiveness. And you call each of us, regardless of our past, regardless of our relationship with you, to say, let's take a step forward. Let's take a step forward. Let's continue to walk in new life. Let's continue to learn what it means to be a new creation made in the image of God, thriving and flourishing in every way of life. And sometimes it feels uncomfortable. Sometimes we feel like we're giving up stuff that we have grown attached to or we don't want to give up. But we know that you have our best in mind. We know it. We trust it. We believe it. Even as you're sitting here today, you might just acknowledge that, just even with a whisper in, in your own mind, just saying, God, I recognize you have my best in mind, and I trust you. You have my best life in mind, and I trust you. And even when it's difficult, I trust you. Boy, if we could make that commitment today. We would see our lives change. We would see our families change. We would see our community and our culture change. So, Lord, we make that commitment to you. We lay down ourselves. We deny ourselves, and we live for you. You are the Lord of our lives. That's our declaration today. We thank you for this time. We thank you that we've looked into all these topics and that we know you are real. We know that your word, your Bible, your scriptures are true. And we know that you are working for our good and our best. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody at Homestead said, amen.